This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance. Uh, podcast 3131. Uh, and with me is Johan Edebo in Sweden. Hi, Johan. Hello. And Hiroyuki Hamada again out in Long Island, aren't you? Hi, Hiroyuki. Yes. Hi, John. Um, and again, uh, with these constant kind of um, uh, crossed wires with Corey Morningstar, who, who again wanted to be here. And, you know, I hope again uh, manages to, to get here, but she will be back um, next time, I'm quite sure. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted to. to to start this by mentioning something because it 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 was uh, an article that that had a strange effect on me, a kind of singular um, effect, and th and that was Scorsese's article on on Fellini um, in the Atlantic. And it was first of all, Scorsese's really a brilliant film critic. He is. He's extraordinary writing about film. Would that he were as good a filmmaker as he is a film critic. But uh, the article affected me less for his appreciation of Fellini, which was was convincing and articulate and rather beautiful. Um, made me want to go back and watch certain Fellini again. Um, but because of the introduction, the, the first couple of paragraphs in which he described walking in New York City in presumably like the mm. 60s, um, a time when uh, I was almost there. I got to New York in 69. But I remember this, and it's something that that because I was I read this article, it became quite palpable and. Um, I could I could remember it and and feel it a visceral kind of presence for me and he describes walking past the Bleecker Street Cinema and and then Judson's and and Theater Genesis and and the, all of these art houses the Art Playhouse and all of these different theaters um, that were showing. Cassavetes and Ozu and and um, Antonioni and Warhol screenings at midnight and Chabral and on and on and on mm -hmm. and I remember that and it made me think a um, when I used to go in the sixties or seventies um, to movies in New York I had a sort of I was living with Terry Ork. We shared a, a loft in Chinatown and um, that would be worth a million dollars a month now, but never mind. Um, and and we would go to two or three movies a day. Often he would just sort of skip out on work. He worked at Cinemabilia uh, that may still be there, cinema bookstore. And uh, uh, we would run into people, smart people at every screening. And you'd say, oh, hi, hi, yeah, oh, you came to see the Edgar G. Ulmer retrospective, <laughs> oh, great, you know, esoteric, strange um, mm. film addicts. But the other thing was, I'm talking about walking into whatever, the Bleecker Street Cinema at 12 noon to see an Ozu double bill, and there would be 30 people in there. 
and and it reminded me that in those days and and by 1970 this was a bit the tail end of this but i remember nobody worked you didn't have to work if you were an artist you didn't have to work you worked part time you sort of took handouts and and you got grants and stipends from places and people. There were patrons everywhere. You know, when Lindsay was mayor, they threw money at artists. They threw lodging apartments. I know people that are still living in rent-controlled apartments they got in 1965. Uh, and and you, you got by. You weren't suffering. You were doing okay, um, you know, because things were cheap. I washed dishes at a... At a macrobiotic restaurant on east 6th street i think it was um and i lived on that and i had a storefront on elizabeth street um you know that cost me like 10 cents a month or something um it had a lot of rats but it was okay but the point being that artists got by and because of that there was a community and because of that community there was a discourse there was a a communal dialogue and and a shared sense of um, of this this interrelationship and this 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for this this kind of shared vision and ideas that were passed back and forth and and everybody had a certain level of enthusiasm about this and and nobody felt none of us worked. So we could go to the movies, which were very cheap. And we worked maybe once a week or something, you know, it was, and, and it was wonderful and it was exciting. And out of that came, you know, off, off Broadway in theater, we saw extraordinary um, work in the fine arts and dance. And, um, and there was this, this film culture that Scorsese talks about. Mm -hmm. And I came away from that article thinking it is all gone. All of that, all of that is entirely gone. So that's my introduction to, to this podcast. <laughs> well, you know what? I, uh, I'm, I'm a, uh, in a later uh, generation um, and um, I was born in 68. And uh, uh, the, my relationship to art is, um, cultivated through um well the the most of all i i was uh um in the studio all the time um uh working all the time and um um but the uh the those uh, mutual um um uh mutually helping uh environment of art i think has been um sort of um uh, locked into uh, capitalist framework. There are uh, things called uh, artist residencies. Right. So those right. are um, uh, funded by donors. They uh, depend on uh, public um, uh, donations, but many of the places uh, do work with uh, 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 foundations and right. uh, big institutions. And uh, they do offer... Um, uh, that kind of environment. After I graduated from the uh, uh, graduate school, I um, right uh, went right into um, um, 
routine of going from one place to another, uh, depending on those uh, uh, institutions. So, um, but it's not really incorporated into the community. It, it is isolated right. uh, communities away from uh, um, uh, all the things. And, and they do have their own communities. Uh, like one of the places in Vermont uh, is basically um, the town itself is sort of incorporating the, uh, this uh, art residency. Right, and, uh, right. uh, there are a bunch of buildings uh, spread in town and they sort of work together. So when you go mm -hmm. there, you do have the community and uh, it's things are centered around and artists share opinions. And I have um, felt that kind of special um, uh, feeling of being among um, artists. Mm. The creativity is respected and uh, we don't have to explain who we are. <laughs> we understand each other and we understand, we respect each other. Um, and uh, we learn from each other and all those things. But again, this is locked into the, uh, the capitalist framework. Well, well, you know? let me yeah. just interrupt you because, and then Johan, because I, I, I want you mm. to comment, but um, sure. this, this transition, you know, we've talked about this transition that happened um, after Vietnam and, uh, and, and the, the, I remember when I was a small boy, and I hate this to start becoming autobiographical, but I remember as a small boy, I was living in Hollywood um, and in the in the sort of working class, lower working class flatlands of Hollywood. And um, uh, we knew everybody on the block and there were a lot of families and everybody ran around and, and people knew my parents and my mother was a great cook. And I remember... I'd get up in the morning, the, the, the kitchen was full of neighbors and, and it was all very kind of post-World War II Aussie and Harriet-ish um, um, or the Honeymooners-ish or something. And uh, that, was, that disappeared too. That began to unravel um, by Vietnam and a lot changed. That was a crucial kind of watershed and the art became institutionalized. And I mean, I got a McDowell colony residency. I didn't go because for a variety of reasons, but, um, but I did get one and um, uh, it, it, it was funded by a whole, you know, people like Skirball Kennis and all of these foundations, Ford Foundation and whoever it was. And, and, um, and, you know, even that now is disappearing. But I think the crucial mm -hmm. point is that uh, it wasn't it it no it had already migrated from the community from the streets to mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. to academically kind of protected areas. It was still better than nothing, mm -hmm. far better than nothing. But even that now has has I think um, evaporated for the most part. Um, anyway, that's all. Yeah, and I and I think these these kinds of places, these contexts, still do exist. I I've experienced them myself in my various um, various uh, uh, fields and so on. But but I think that the the most important thing to realize here is that this used to be commonplace in every aspect of society. This this type of 
of, of interrelated tight knit community experience you describe you st- it was not a, it's just it's a a facet of the art world it, it was something you found if you worked in a kitchen or something like that and and i think that kind of way of of life way to be alongside other human beings is being eroded also i i think you need to uh, also realize that the period you describe from from the in, in the late 60s early 70s i mean that was probably somewhere close to the peak of the the greatest period of, of growth in, in human history so so i mean we, we could probably could fund a, a few artists here and there but but anyway just let me read a very short piece from this book you mentioned last time de Boer's comments on the society of the spectacle because he makes a, a similar remark i think this is like 1988 or something Uh, then he says, for the Agora, the general community no longer exists, nor even communities restricted to intermediary bodies or to autonomous institutions, to salons or cafes or to workers in a single company. No place where people can discuss the realities which concern them because they can never lastingly free themselves from the crushing presence of mediatic discourse and of the various forces organized to relay it. So his point is that these uh, ecosystems of social relations can't find space to grow in this suffocating environment of of mass-mediated discourse and so on. I mean, there's no space for it. It's dying out. No, I think I think this is is so absolutely true and is really the message of this whole discussion. I mean, it it is gone and and when I read the Scorsese, I felt very acutely. I mean, I felt a real kind of depression and sadness. I thought that is all gone. Perhaps I didn't appreciate it at the time, but uh, the, the, the community, the fact that, that people weren't working extraordinarily long hours for ever less money were not stressed. I don't remember that sense of acute anxiety and stress. It's like, you know, you know, when I was 18, I read Henry Miller and it had a certain kind of effect on me. Like, oh, you you actually can just tell people to fuck off if you don't like them. If they, you can you you can fight with your boss, you know, so you get fired. So what? you won't die. Um, and it was very liberating. And that I don't feel that in young people today. I mean, I feel an extraordinary oppressive kind of weight they carry around mm. um, because there is this mm. isolation. And, and of course, with the lockdowns, one starts um, becoming increasingly paranoid about it all because it, it just keeps going on and on and on. And you see headlines. There was a headline in The Guardian, I think, today that said, um, study finds talking spreads virus as much as coughing. <laughs> I thought, well, well, just shut up then. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary and, and, uh, and it makes me very sad and, and that, that sense that that has been lost, but you realize that the forces, this kind of social concentration, um, that, that, that of power and, 
and the accumulation of wealth, the, the contraction of wealth into very few people, um, the institutionalization of everything, the professionalization of the culture, um, the hyper institutionalization of the culture, uh, and and you know commodification, all of the things, the stuff that Bohr talked about, all of this. All, this is a 40, 50 year process. If we're talking, of course, it's much longer than that, but it's a 40, 50 year process, and it's not. It's now gone, the stuff we started with, and it's not going to come back probably if everybody worked very hard, it'll take 50 years to bring it back too. That's my pessimistic observation. Um, <laughs> Where do we go from there? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There was a lot of dead air, a lot of dead air there. Um, uh, no, I, I think that you, you because people say to me often, well, what are we supposed to do? And, you know, and one tries to answer it and build community and educate yourself and aesthetic resistance, all of this stuff. But mm -hmm. the other answer is, well, you have to be very patient and, and it, it's not going to happen right now. It does it because this has been going on this this. Um, tectonic shift in in you know people's psyches and then of course the the internet intercedes and and upends everything and um you know we we have this glacial but you know um kind of irresistible movement but you know the, the, towards the, fascism you know right, anyway but go the, ahead the, the question itself you know what so what uh, could we do? You know, what's your solution? You know, that I, I think that I don't see that as an honest uh, question because no, neither do I. Neither I mean, good those point. people who are saying those things are awfully patient about what they are being imposed on. They 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 would be okay with wearing masks, you know, because it's gonna be just for a while. Uh, right. Right. Or you know, getting uh, uh, vaccinated, uh, mandatory uh, injection. Uh, you know, they're patient. You know, <laughs> they're okay with that. And well, uh, it's a it's a mark it, of privilege. That question is an expression of privilege, I think. Anyway, but continue, please. Right, right, right. That, that's that's another way of uh, uh, saying that. It's it's uh, they are leaning against uh, this establishment and. Uh, uh, whatever that comes from them uh, can be tolerated. But if you want to go against, if you want alternative things, um, it's much more strict. You have to uh, give you uh, an instant solution uh, that's going to take care of everything. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not going to happen because, you know, we have this enormous uh, situation uh, um of authoritarianism so yeah. um but the, the 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 asking that kind of question uh totally indicate that they don't see it they don't see the uh well i tend i tend to i tend to agree you know um but johan you were going to say something i'm sorry i didn't want to uh, actually, I wasn't, but but I'm thinking about <laughs> thinking about David Henry Thoreau. Do you are you familiar with him? Yes, of course. Uh, I'm not sure if he was uh, something that everybody in the in the states used to read, but uh, I mean, I'm not uh, subscribing to the the entire ideology of the the U.S. transcendentalist movement. But David Henry Thoreau, I remember, wrote a book of essays he, he called. Uh, 
self-reliance uh, <clears throat> or it was a later collection or something like that but right. he had this this uh, central idea of of a uh, and it was very anchored in the enlightenment view of the rational human being and so on but he emphasized this uh, innate uh, genius of every human being that if it only would would like become unfettered uh, enough it these things would would take care of themselves so i mean uh, there is there's something hopeful in in this uh, this notion of uh, of the human beings innate capacity to recreate these uh, these necessary relations and structures if if we can only find the minimal amount of necessary space to grow and right. there there i think is at least an inkling of of uh, the the solution like if one can only like recapture this minimal amount of space that is necessary for us to to grow and rebuild i think that's where the answer lies somewhere. well i you know i it, it, there, when some people ask the question i mean somebody asked me on facebook the other day quite sincerely and and i didn't take any anything negative away from and ask well where does one start one's aesthetic education and i made a few suggestions. i said watch john Berger's, you know ways of seeing from 1972 you could start there and um and on and on i gave a few listings and he thanked me and that was that that's perfectly sincere but but mm -hmm. um because that's i you know that's i a request to be a student in a sense to a teacher of some sort and that's always a good thing but when the question becomes like a part of a, a kind of political activist context, I don't know how else to put it, um, then it becomes a very privileged kind of question because um, mm -hmm. because a you know you you have the wherewithal to sit back and ask that question, um, and and there's a lot of a lot of a lot most of the planet doesn't have um, the space to ask yeah. that question. Uh, so there's that, but, but it's also, I'm, uh, this letter I got, um, that I mentioned at the beginning or didn't mention at the beginning from somebody who listens to the podcast and he was talking about, uh, he travels quite a bit in the U S he has some job that allows him to travel even during COVID. And, um, he said, I just want to give you an overview, uh, my sense of the geographic and class breakdown uh, in terms of, mm -hmm. of obedience to, to mask wearing, social distancing, all of this stuff. He said, if you go to New York, Boston, San Francisco, the Northeast big cities, um, the liberal cities, San Francisco and neighboring environs, um, you are going to see total compliance. You're going right. to see virtue signaling, mm -hmm. shaming and stigmatizing of those who don't wear masks. And it's, you know, it's very much the white kind of hot bourgeoisie that are that are driving this compliance. He said, if you go um, south of the Mason-Dixon line, you head to the south, you see none of it. Nobody's wearing a mask. And there's enormous hostility and skepticism in especially the working class um, in the southern states um, who don't buy this this official state narrative at all. Now, you know, that that's kind of what I would have guessed, actually. Um, and and the thing is, I talk to people in Los Angeles, mostly. Most of my friends are still in Los Angeles, and I talk to them. 
and most of them retain a certain degree of optimism, which is interesting. Oh, well, it, you know, it's going to return to normal pretty soon and stuff. And I think, well, I really hope you're right. And I hope I've been delusionally paranoid about all of this, but I just don't think so. Um, uh, you know, commercial airlines uh, are bankrupt. They've cut routes. Mm. You know, there's going to be huge restrictions on travel. If Tony Blair gets his way, everybody needs a passport. Um, there's a lot of changes going on. And with the enormous loss of jobs and businesses, um, we're, we're unlikely to, to see a return to, to the pre-COVID um, even in the best circumstances, we're not going to see it very quickly. But that reminds me of one other thing. I don't want to keep blabbing on. But mm -hmm. when I gave you this reminiscence at the beginning, I said, you know, and I remember people coming over in my neighborhood. As a, I also remember mm -hmm. that there were a lot of family businesses. There were lunch counters and clothing stores and, and delicatessens. And um, they were all family-owned small businesses. And that's where we... Um, you know, shopped and, and um, ate lunch and whatever. And they all disappeared in, um, I would say, the late 60s through the early 70s. That was the first wave of like the first culling of retail. Um, and now we're seeing the, you know, the retail apocalypse under under COVID, which is mm -hmm. the complete and total elimination of family businesses. Um, so but that marked again, that marked the beginning of, of a very a profound cultural and and um, political shift in in um, in certainly in American society. But I, I think it was mirrored um, in many ways in Europe, too. I don't know. Um, but anyway, that was, I just wanted to add that. Um, so uh, uh, I think that, that, you know, last week we talked about propaganda a lot. And I, I also wanted to re return to that a little bit um, mm. because, Johan, you and I were just talking me, about uh, Rainer Moss. On, on that note of, of uh, I, I, see, uh, I see your point here, and, and many people have, have raised this issue that, the lockdowns will centralize economic power or small businesses uh, all over the place. And, and uh, I'm just wondering what you think about that. What, what, what do you think the, the effects of, of this uh, process, uh, the most obvious effects of this process will turn out to be in your view? I'm not really sure. I mean, will it um, erode uh, the power of, of the middle class in the U.S. in a tangible way. How, how do you think this will play out immediately? Well, I think I think we're I think there's what you know. Some people see this almost, um, you know, brave new world scenario, and that's probably exaggerated. There mm -hmm. is clearly a a kind of select group in the ruling class that includes you know like the british royal family but i mean all the klaus schwabian posse out there um schwab apparently was reasonably well acquainted with henry kissinger i learned but anyway um uh that that they are looking they are really pushing for this dystopian depopulation agenda and bill gates is part of that and i i, I don't think that's conspiracy theory at all i think that's almost provable but I don't think they're necessarily going to be successful. And I think that particular version of, of 
this this you know great reset this mm-hmm. green new deal all of this reset of capital um that particular vision is imagines you know an endless string of smart cities everywhere and the digitalization of everything and no more cash everything will be done i don't think that will succeed and we can have a separate talk about why i think it won't but it will still affect things hugely and to some degree i guess you could say well it will partially succeed and that will mean or it will succeed in a way that eliminates family businesses completely. Everything will be owned by giant, you know, Google and Microsoft and all of these places. Um, And they will dictate a lot of, of domestic policy in the U S and NATO countries. I don't think, I think that's very likely and it's going to mean um, um, a much sharper and rigid, um, social stratification i mean i think i think the class hierarchy will be mm. will be more acute and more obvious and it will be more painful for the lower rungs mm. on on that class um and and i also think that one of the things i wish i could convince people of in a sense is is the fraudulence of so much of the the COVID marketing, you know, um, there, there was a YouTube mm. video of a nurse talking about mm. the hospital overcounting deaths. And she said, Christ, everybody who dies in the hospital is now a COVID. Everybody. Um, you could mm. come in decapitated. You would have been labeled a COVID. death. Um, and I think the, I think the video was, was legit. And I think she was sincere. And so I think there's a, a pretty large level of that. So to tie that in, to, to your question, I think I think we're going to see um, a, an era in which uh, a lot of people, probably half the populace of the West, is going to reject this reset and is going to finally, you know, forcibly, actively reject, you know, the new restrictions and so forth. Um, and and then the question is going to be just how um, how violent or 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 um, what the measures that will be taken by the state in response to that. And and I don't know. I don't know. But if you guys have an opinion on that, please tell me. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, the basic the the mobilization is geared toward destruction of communities uh basically consolidating uh things in into institutions that are uh, uh corporate funded so um when we don't have uh, sustainable communities that produces consumes and uh, uh mm-hmm. organically uh um uh, work as a unit, uh, things are taken care of because we don't want to pollute things in the community. We don't want to destroy schools that are uh, attended by our own children. And uh, But when we have institutions that are funded by big money, um, that's a different story. So this is the... the uh, the big uh, transition we've been going through for a century. I don't know mm-hmm. how long, mm-hmm. but uh, so mm-hmm. this is um, intensifying with the uh, 
yeah. COVID measures. And, um, uh, and this is really scary thing because we can't really see it. Right. Because right. it's, it's a systematic and structural and uh, it's happening every living moment of our lives. So it's invisible. It, it, we are hardened into this situation uh, little by little, but, um, you know, surely, you know, it, it's happening. So, mm. um, yeah, that's a, that's a, um, something um, we should talk about. And then we, I think we do talk about um, um, losing communities, um, uh, you know, losing uh, a little cafe in, in our town, right. uh, yeah. turning into mm-hmm. Starbucks and uh, um, um, little stores disappearing, big markets coming in and uh, yeah. all those things, you know, it's a chronic um um, you know, domestication of the people by the corporations. And um, uh, this mm. COVID situation is, it's really, really uh, effective in um, doing that. And also, like John um, just mentioned about the depopulation. And uh, I, mm. I talked about it a little bit in my article too. Uh, mm. It is, I think, uh, um something we should understand um, about destroying uh, economy for the people is destroying communities, organic relations to make families and sustain communities. Uh, If we don't have those things, we have smaller population, you know? So that's that. Well, absolutely. Look, you know, the, 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 there's no question that birth rates have collapsed across the, you know, right. Um, North America and Europe, extraordinary um, um, decline in, in, in birth rates um, to the degree that countries like Italy and even Scandinavia are going to be really dependent on immigrant labor in 10, 15 years. Um, because they're just nobody's having kids, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that that we've already talked about here today, um, you know, and in previous podcasts, um, uh, you know, because the, the and I the, mean, uh, if you have a huge population of, of elderly, it's a it's a significant problem if you have a, a an overweight of, of elderly people in the community because you have a resource problem you don't have enough producers i mean this is a it's a disaster if you get too many in that cohort right no absolutely and uh, and you know this is i mean the microcosm for this oddly enough um was the catholic church with fewer and fewer um uh, nuns young women becoming nuns and it mm-hmm. And one of the reasons was they faced um, decades of taking care of the elderly nuns um, and because there was nobody else to take care of them. And so then they would decide against um, the convent and and um, find another, you know, path of piety or something because uh, it and, and so there is there is now this crisis um, of a shortage um, of, of women 
um, becoming nuns and, and it's probably will die out. The whole institution will die out because the vast majority are elderly and don't produce and can't run the, the convent and can't run the monastery. And, um, and in a society is kind of like a dying monastery. I think we could say, um, so it's, 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 go ahead. Yeah, man. Yeah, I have a. I could. Uh, I could try to tie into the the discussion of propaganda from this issue of of a losing community because I think we have a, a deep need of this uh, this community and these uh, basic relations, and in some sense, I believe the void is being filled by these. Uh, these more or less false community relations of the social media. And, and I, th I thought I was really clever here the other day when I, I coined this expression. I think it was crowdsourced propaganda or, or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was. And I was trying to describe a fact I, I think is peculiar to this concept, context of social media and, and online culture. Uh, you could call it participatory propaganda or crowdsourced propaganda, but but anyway, let me let me uh, start from the beginning uh, and, uh, because in, in the in the classical discussion, so to speak, of propaganda in the forties, fifties, and sixties, researchers identified uh, something they called horizontal propaganda, and, and one example was uh, in the situation of of Mao Zedong's uh, China where you had these community groups, which basically practiced a kind of face-to-face -face catechism, where you thought we taught each other the fundamentals of, of Maoism and, and uh, Marxist-Leninism and so on. I think I get the feedback from one of you guys. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm fascinated with this and-, and, and um... uh, let, me, let me continue. Please. I can. Yeah, I'll just go on. But I think I get feedback from one of your one of your speakers there. Anyway, uh, the the point of this kind of of face to face propaganda was to to like everybody must strongly internalize and identify with the system and your role in the system. And uh, this was accomplished in a more robust sense because uh, here you act out, you represent, and you internalize your role as a kind of keeper of the system and as a, uh, a part of it. So, I mean, the point was that it was easier to internalize this, this worldview when, when you and your relatives uh, and so on sat around the table once a week and taught each other the official state narrative instead, if, if, uh, instead of when you just passively received it. And this, I think, is an interesting starting point to start discussing the the function and mode of propaganda in, in social media, if, if you want right. to. No, I think it's, this direction. yeah, I, I think that's a profound um, um, example and reference for the discussions of community. I mentioned last time that my, when I lived in Poland, um, the, the, we, you mm -hmm. talked to older Poles about what they missed um, uh, of communism. And it was quite a lot actually. Um, but the main thing was the once a week, the meetings that were scheduled for work or study or or whatever. No, I mean, I, I think uh, 
the propaganda in social media, but it but it extends beyond. So you can, almost can't separate it from from mass media, from from Hollywood, from mm. um, you know the the New York Times and Washington Post, um, the celebrity culture that you know uh, it, it's an extraordinary spectacle now. Um, no, it's yeah, it's an integrated spectacle. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that it you you have people who you know we've talked a little bit about this but 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 the habituation to screens the people live their lives on screens people communicate you know um uh, by mm. by smartphone even if the other person's in the next room if if, the, if they're across the table from them often they're texting to them um i mean and that's that's not an exaggeration so there there is i mean something happened over the course of this 50 year period we're, we're kind of referencing something happened in which the working class or the, or the, at least the, maybe the working class and the bourgeoisie, both in a sense um, <clears throat> began to identify with the aggressor. They started to, to um, mimic or, 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 and that was in that Martin J article too on, on Adorno and Scorsese, Scorsese's everywhere. Um, uh, on on rackets and and that they began to mimic internally the power dynamics that that existed in in these mini authoritarian um, very tightly knit groups like mafias and so forth uh, an organized crime that but I imprint think I think you need outward. yeah this uh, this kind of, of institution I also think is it's entirely indispensable in, in any kind of complex technological society because I think I said this uh, at another podcast, but in maintaining this complex system of production, distribution and reproduction, you and I are forced into an artificial set of roles and, and artificial behaviors that are more or less incompatible with human nature and our innate predispositions. And you, you have to somehow recreate these roles, so these these relations of productions in an artificial manner because the system is not going to hold, it's not going to, to be cohesive otherwise. Right. I think you can't really get it, get around this. Well, See, I think, or, yeah. Yeah, go ahead here. Okay. Well, that's why we have um, uh, New York Times and uh, Washington Post and mm -hmm. we have uh, NGOs uh, telling us uh, to, um, um be under the uh, certain slogans uh, so that the uh, our momentums are uh, domesticated and uh, safely um, uh, used uh, within the uh, structure of production uh, of the industries mm -hmm. right well I think I think I think that um, I think we we have, the, the all of the things we discussed here in the last hour talking about things that have been lost the sense of community that's been lost small businesses familiarity with your neighbors etc cetera, etc cetera, unions and cooperatives and shared um labor goals and so forth organizing at that level um has largely disappeared i mean there are activists today who who aggressively organize at the grassroots level, but they are doing it much more in isolation for much more isolated um, and, and, and very specialized goals um, <clears throat> that, that often don't um, 
expand very far in into the society they have they have very narrow targets and that's fine and it's maybe necessary right mm-hmm. now and it's a good thing but um that that erosion of of um of community of of, of sharing and mm-hmm. um of had, has taken place over this 40-year period in which i think people have become mm-hmm. increasingly isolated and anxious you see the rise mm-hmm. um acute rise in the use of antidepressants people are much sicker than they have ever been before gabor mate talks about that you know that, that one in four americans is is um a, you know suffering some really debilitating um, immune system, compromised immune system, a, a condition that, that compromises the immune system. Um, and, and, and so you couple that to this habituation to screens, the relentless assault of propaganda that, that's 24-7, um, and the fact that people must work longer um, for less pay, mm-hmm. less job security. I mean, there's no job security. People are guest workers in their own country now, if we're speaking of the U.S. and U.K. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, families suffer. Mm-hmm. Parents have less time with their children. Children are, are warehoused either chemically or with screen um, yeah. addictions. Uh, I mean, I, you see it, I, because I have three small children, I see it in, in the, the, the toys that are sold, the design of toys, um, is, is just terrifying to me. Um, but, but this is, so there are all these tentacles, all these branches of influence that, um, are shaping this, you know, a particularly dark time that we live in, I think. And, Uh and, um, the most recent thing, the thing that I find very frustrating or hardest, if in, and maybe this is, I don't know, almost a trivial observation, but the hatred of Trump, the hatred of Trump will go down historically um, as as the one of the greatest like social psychological disfigurements in American history, Um, almost an anomaly of some sort in which this outsized, disproportionate, all-consuming hatred of this idiot, um, this wannabe kind of gangster and his grifter family that through all sorts of happenstance and and other reasons took the White House for four years, um, has has also had a numbing effect on um, and, and retarded the, the skepticism and critical reaction that I think would have yeah, been much yeah. greater toward COVID. Um, I think Trump served the ruling class um, impeccably in that sense, because um, now if you say, I think the COVID uh, phenomenon is is bogus. I think this is wildly exaggerated. I think it's untrue. It's fraudulent. There's lies and manipulation and everything. And we don't need a vaccine um, for the flu, you know, and um, you will be called a Trump supporter. The first reaction guaranteed, I promise you, is you will be called a Trump supporter. And that's that's almost stops the conversation, you know. Um, hmm. and, and you see the censorship of Gina Carano. Gina Carano may be a moron. I'm pretty certain she is a moron. She actually comes from a wealthy pseudo-gangster family in Nevada that's connected to casinos just as a sidebar. But anyway, um, you know, the censorship of her is being applauded, you know, by, by people who I th- used to think of as really smart. 
Um, and and uh, and I think, but 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 you know, the First Amendment, guys, you know that that should still have some. You see this actor that's been. Who is she? Is she this actor that's been? Discussed? Yeah, she's an actor in a apparently yeah, a hit yeah. show. Yeah, and she was a um, oh, yeah, yeah. she was a fighter, a you know, um, mixed mm. martial arts champion or something. Um, God only oh, yeah, yeah, knows. Yeah. See, the whole tale becomes so preposterous as we as we lay it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she tweeted something that was relatively innocuous. It wasn't. It was stupid. You know, my God. Yeah. Um, and but she was attacked. And, and, you know, we see this, this, you know, the 24 hour news cycle and people fetishizing these stories. Now, a documentary, Kirby Dick, I know Kirby Dick, I know his wife very, very well, and put that in for full disclosure. But now he makes a, a documentary on Woody Allen, Mia Farrow, and the whole grotesque family. And um, I mean, who gives a shit, you know? But this is going to preoccupy people but, for but a I couple think, of weeks. Yeah, but, and what I what I think is <clears throat> before you you come in, Hiroki, uh, I just uh, what I think is uh, is new with this uh, digital social media context is that you and I, in a much more tangible sense, are placed in the role of of. A, disseminating and, and reproducing uh, propaganda, reproducing ideology in a much more tangible sense than, than, than has ever been the case before. I mean, I think people are in a, in a robust sense being used to spread these, uh, these narratives horizontally to, to express public assent or dissent in relation to to, to these uh, figures, these foils, or these heroes, in view of their peers, which is then also facilitated by by the algorithms, which are pushing or, or nudging certain types of content, and that I think is a is a new phenomenon that capitalizes on this uh, this lack of tangible community. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. That that's that's the uh, 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 that's a major concern because. Um, it is true that the um, uh, COVID uh, is uh, there. There are many, many fraudulent elements, and uh, also the uh, the corporate politics, the role of uh, 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 Donald Trump in it. Um, we can talk about all those things, and uh, a lot of things are legitimate. But at the same time, when we discuss those uh, topics that are uh, already legitimate, already um, uh, mm-hmm. set uh, um, with um, framework uh, that are uh, stipulated by the uh, institutions. Uh, we simply operate within the, um, uh, the mm-hmm. ring when we fight Sure. It doesn't matter if we won, win, or lose. Mm, uh, right. The fact that we are there fighting legitimizes. Well, that but I topic. think this, yeah, 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 and and that's yeah, it's a really, really it's a tough situation. Good point. Yeah. No, yeah. because you, as soon as you are on social media, when I had the big fight with a fellow leftist recently, you know, because I 
I shared a link with what's his name, Russell Brand. Now I know Russell Brand's an idiot, but you know, <laughs> I have a soft spot for him. It doesn't matter. That's not important. What's important is that it just became this virulent fight. And I kept saying, but we're on social media, you know, we're on social media. This whole platform, the whole, you know, the whole architecture mm. of social media driven by these mm. negative algorithms and negative emotions um, is, is going to encourage mm. this kind of virulence and, and disproportionate um, emotional investment in, in stuff that sure. is only affecting at most, you know, 80, 100 people, right? You have to, there, there's something about the scale that becomes skewed um, and, and people live in their own little strange um, psychic uh, uh, mansions of discontent and, and run through the hall screaming, thinking that this has relevance to something. And it's, it's, it's tricky because on the one hand, we want to think that we are helping um you know, share good information and educate people and ourselves become educated, better educated, whatever. Um, but, but it's very easy to forget that, um, we, that everything you do is, is in one sense already neutralized and pre-digested yeah. and, and put out there in this way that is very hard to control and you can't see the people you're on a a thread of comments that overlap and cross, um, <clears throat> what do they call it? Cross post with other people. And, um, and it's just incoherent, you know, I mean, Twitter is how many characters you're only allowed a few characters. So, and then people use memes mm -hmm. and, and, and all of these things, these new hieroglyphics of, of emojis and memes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and it is, Sometimes I, I feel a horror, you know, I'm gripped with the horror of this stuff and I have to run away from the computer right. um, be, because I think it's probably far worse than even I imagine it is, you know. Right. It's, it's, mm. a, it's a, yeah, it is a, a very difficult situation. We have this uh, mode of communication that forces us to sort of uh, pick and choose what we want to hear yeah. and uh, enhance in our heads. So, you know, we will think that we are saying the uh, essential things and but it is, you know, uh, chopped up. Yeah. As yeah, it go into the uh, uh, outlet and uh, when and people cross post and uh, share. And uh, when that happens, um, it's totally in a different context. Your well, I think it's I think it's very hard to read. Um, to read people's tone on on social media i don't even know why that is but but if, if we're talking about memes or the meme so i mean marshall McLuhan used to emphasize that the medium is the message or the medium is the metaphor and that the medium strongly influences the well the the content or the reception or the effect of the message and and i would say that these um, Twitter confined format with a few characters and the, the meme as, as a mode of communication, it erodes the rational content of the communications. I, I can send you 
like right. a, a book of Kierkegaard and, and or a meme. And I mean, one will emphasize the rational communication. One will be a, a complex message that you can and we, that you must like analyze rationally. And the other one will be one where you will tend to react emotionally and associatively rather than critically thinking. And I think that is a, is a really important aspect of how how social media reinforces uh, these uh, power structures, really. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, um, uh, it, it's, um, there have been a lot of things written about about internet communication and 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 um, the effects on on children, on teenagers, um, the increase in depression and and you know feelings of inadequacy, the bullying that goes on, um, and and uh, I think it's all true, but I think I think there's also a problem often when when one talks about and I'm guilty of it when anybody talks about. Um, mm social media is to isolate it from from the bigger historical trends at work um you know social media often to me feels like the inevitable outcome of what happened mm -hmm. in, in post vietnam right that 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 the government sure. doubled down on control of message and and started to create um <clears throat> ideas of heroism and courage that were tied into militarism mm -hmm. and individualism and in, in ways they had never done before um mm -hmm. and and you know now uh the I, it's extraordinary if you watch television um whether it's the evening news or sporting events my god um how, how the jingoism and and um just mm -hmm. naked kind of like Hitlerian fascist fawning over power and and violence is extraordinary, mm. you know. Um, and but we've all gotten used to it to some degree. I think everybody's really numb to it on on one level. I am, um, and and I just tend to overlook it because it's too depressing to constantly dwell on. And um, and one takes one's small pleasures where one can because they're being stolen yeah. from us every day, and and you cling to what is left. That, I think that's part of it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the the propaganda question. And one thing I wanted to get to, but we're going to have to get to it next time, mm -hmm. Johan, is um, mm -hmm. is education and the deep learning mm -hmm. um, discussion topic. Because you had a whole... how much time do we have left? Well, go ahead, talk about it quickly. Then, as an introduction <laughs> to the next one, please. I, there's no rush. Go ahead. I wasn't going to go into the issue of education, but we can really talk about that next time. I mean, I, I've I've been really interested in this issue of well, education and schooling is really a form of of a, it functions as indoctrination and the reproduction of these. Uh, Relations of production, but uh, did you want to say something before I, I continue, Hiroyuki? No, no, no. Please go. I yeah. no, Okay, sure. Uh, I just had a uh, like a, um, a concluding remark on this issue of uh, of participatory propaganda, what, uh, what we should call it, and I think that in the social media context, all, all of these these factors. Uh, in like preferentially reproducing this this background mythology we discussed previously, I think when when you in, 
invite these algorithms into the the picture, uh, you will you will have a situation where where it, they will preferentially reproduce uh, the background narratives and the authoritatively uh, approved uh, narratives, uh, and uh, and I think. Uh, this is a this is a, an aspect of the of the technology as such rather than than it's an emergent phenomenon rather than than some form of conspiracy or intended effect basically right we, we, yeah but i mean i no and i think that's right i and i think that the emergent um the emergent qualities or something um uh, is is worth mm -hmm. discussing i mean because you you had sent me one of our exchanges email exchanges mm -hmm. was that you had just been to a, a conference or a meeting or something right about deep learning maybe we'll dig into this more next time but but oh, yeah yeah, um, I were, yeah yeah and and i think that's i mean i see because my wife's an administrator at a high school an arts high school here um so i get i get a lot of um exposure to to high school kids mm -hmm. and 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 i've even mm -hmm. substitute taught here in drama and mm -hmm. stuff <laughs> i did once with andre vlitschek that was pretty rum <laughs> anyway um the late andre vlitschek and um but but uh uh it, and i see a kind of what Debor called generalized autism you know i see kids mm -hmm. can't read can't talk and there's a loss of affect. Mm -hmm. um, there mm -hmm. is a kind of, you know, it is this blankness, and that's a cliche, but uh, mm -hmm. but it but it, it it's it's rather obvious, and um, and so it, you know, what is the future exactly? What is uh, mm -hmm. this is where it becomes a class analysis again and a class discussion because mm -hmm. um, because. Uh, uh, you, you know, rich people still send their kids to, they don't have, you know, online learning for, for the ruling class. That's for certain. Um, they, they do for, for, for the poor and the COVID story again, you know, this is, this is the same thing. I mean, the people who go to the hospitals um, without insurance and are forced away and everything are poor Latino and black. And, and um, those are the yeah. people that are, treated as disposable they're the same people that educationally are treated as disposable as unnecessary and we're seeing a return of this idea that not everybody should be educated you know people should um the working class should should maybe get those high fluting ideas in their heads you know because all they're going to be doing is you know I don't know, sweeping the, the bathrooms at Caesar's Palace. I don't know, you know, what <laughs> what the official vision is of this stuff. And that's that's what's um, and that, you know, that takes us into this territory. And I wish Corey were here where we, one starts talking about these mm -hmm. smart cities and blockchains and all of, you know, the global interface um, that I have a tendency to to pay less attention to than I should probably because I find it, you know, boring, numbingly boring <laughs> um, as much as I fear it, you know? So I don't know. Okay. Well then let's have concluding thoughts from either one of you. Mm -hmm. 
Um, can I just uh, can I just give you a definition and and uh, let me just contextualize this in the framework of aesthetic resistance and I ask you guys how you you would approach or attack this phenomenon from from your your particular like disciplines of of art artistry or whatever. So here's a definition of participatory propaganda from a couple of guys who have explored this called Wanless and Burke. And they say that participatory propaganda is the deliberate and systematic attempt to shape perceptions, manipulate cognitions and direct behavior of a target audience while seeking to co-opt its members to actively engage in the spread of persuasive communications to achieve a response that furthers the desired intent of propagandists. That's the definition. What do you think? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> what was the question again? Um, um, <laughs> seriously, what was the question? I mean, yeah, yeah. How, how, how would you how would you address uh, such a, a phenomenon? How would you criticize well, I it think, with you the know, tools of your, okay, the uh, yeah. yeah, OK, OK, yeah. right. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I think that people have asked mm -hmm. me in the past, um, and this is the kind of thing that comes up in, in certain discussions. You know, how would you if you if you ran um, mm -hmm. an educational institution, what would you do? Um, and uh uh, certainly I would throw out everything electronic to begin with, if, if that were the question I was answering. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, this almost goes back to like, you know, the university of Chicago and the great books and everything. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I, I would have people, um, I would have people learn, um, I don't know, carpentry or something for two years and, mm -hmm. and, and assign the classics to be read without, you know, mm, yeah. any tests or anything while you're learning to be a carpenter or a gardener or a horse mm. trainer mm. or something. And then in the third year, um, you come in and start studying science and philosophy. Um, although maybe mm. probably you should have already been reading philosophy. Um, and, and, and that would be it until the final year where you get to decide what you want to read yourself. Um, but read the classics and, and then very specifically read philosophy because I, I don't know how else you learn how to think, you know, if, if you want to develop an exactly. autonomous public, you know, of, of people who think for themselves, yeah. that would be the way I would start, I think. Hmm. Hmm. Right, I mean, um, um being good at something uh, which includes it, painting by the way or something right i should have added that sorry go ahead here well i i was going to say that yeah um like you were saying that you're learning something carpentry or something uh gardening whatever uh being good at something really requires to learn the fact that when we look at mm -hmm. outside world you know, things interact in organic ways. Everything have, uh, has a um, role in the dynamics and uh, we learn how it is to see it and how it is to find uh, your position to maximize whatever the uh, harmony you are dealing with. So it's really not about uh, 
dictating uh, one's framework or one's premise for uh, our social interactions. I mean, that's how we regard our society and how we structure our society. But in reality, things are really not, you know, things don't work like that, you know? So when mm -hmm. we talk, uh, you know, going back to uh, particip participatory um, uh, propaganda, um, mm. you know, the, the, this major idea that the uh, um, things interact in uh, uh, this uh, organic um, way, you know, knowing that is really crucial in having mm real conversation that's not a uh, fight between two different frameworks. Right. You know? But see, I think, I think that that's, I think it's really important. I think everything you just said is true. And I think one road to that, like when I say people the first year should be told, okay, you read the classics, but go out here and help build this house. You learn the meaning of words when, when, you work mm. with the material world, right? When you work right. organically, yeah, yeah. you learn the names of different pigments to paint the wall. You learn um, the names of tools. Um, you learn to, I, you know, I think people should learn the names of clouds and describe the weather mm. around them yeah, yeah. Um, because most people can't do that. Uh, so all of that, I think is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it, this is part of what has been lost. Um, just, just very basic um, right. relationship to one's own language and history. And mm. and I think the the importance of learning about classics and the importance of great, profound um, work of art is that there is um, um, profound presence that reflect. Uh, real material um, existence of the world Absolutely. and that resonate yeah, yeah. with us and uh, we feel it to be true. And uh, so I think in that sense, it's mm. really important that we appreciate uh, real things. And um, yeah. um, I, I mean, anybody can come up with a blueprint of something that doesn't work, but it's hard to mm. come up with mm -hmm. um, real plan that's actually operational mm. and uh, in order to do that we need to work with actual materials instead of just uh decrees you know um opinions that are not based on reality so so i guess the, the gist of what you're saying is get people to reconnect with reality and they're more likely to stay rooted yeah reconnect. i mean reality is a kind of loaded word but <laughs> right. You know, if, no, no, I, I if you <laughs> if you <laughs> if you get people to, um, I mean, gardening, um, which I yeah. taught myself, is extraordinarily therapeutic. But you also you also learn of necessity all sorts of things, mm. and you have to go look up certain things um, to 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 do it well. Um, building mm. is that way in Norway. There's a what they call a folk high school, a famous one um, in Risa, mm -hmm. um, where they build boats like the Vikings built them. And mm. each at the end of each semester, you see them out on the fjord. It's quite beautiful. 
Um, and, and so they learn, you know, and I think it's wonderful um, and, and incredibly, you know, important sort of that path of education seems really important mm -hmm. to me. I mean, look, in the United States, um, the, the postgraduate subject with fewest applications is the classics. Um, and history, I think, is second. And the most popular is, of course, business. And, and the society reflects that, or that reflects the society, or both. Um, and that's, that's tragic. That's horrific. That's a dystopia. Um, and, and people are going to become a, increasingly alienated from their own feelings and, mm -hmm. and increasingly dependent yeah. on antidepressants and, um, and this sort of artificial manufactured stimulation of stuff like social media and, and Hollywood movies and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, none of which yeah, is, I really is, think these are, are great uh, examples I mean this this uh, profound hands-on reconnection with what I would call reality is I think the best inoculation to use a, another loaded word against this uh, this alienating spectacle that's that's uh, currently all around us and I, I think I also think that the classics uh, I'm an Aristotelian I, myself and I think that the classics if we talk about really old philosophy, it's a reflection of this kind of experience in a very profound sense. Absolutely. See, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I, yeah, and I feel that, and I remember when I first started reading that's, and I'm this autodidact, but um, when, you know, I was surrounded by people that read serious books and I started reading um, and thinking this is, this is revelatory, you know, this is, I felt mm. some connection with, with um, the mm. material world that had been missing. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay, guys. Um, uh, <laughs> I probably have uh, to go down from the shed here and put the kids to sleep. Um, it looks like it's that time. So um, thank you both. And um, we'll tentatively try to do this next Sunday. Um, and hopefully Corey sure. will, be, will be with us. Um, because there's, you know, there is so much to talk about after all. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, so, okay. Um, take care, uh, Johan. Hiroyuki. And, yeah, thank and, you so much. Um, thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank Johan, you, guys. Thank you. We'll talk later. Yeah, see you. Yep. Thank you. Adios.